Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Coming up on the Science Revolution, Noah Greenwald from the Center for Biological Diversity is here on Trump's latest actions to weaken the Endangered Species Act. You know, as we destroy the wild, we destroy ourselves. Dr. Justin A. Frank, MD, drops by and says it is terrifying to have a president who is psychotic and explains why Trump hates anyone who is loved. Former Assistant Secretary for Health under Obama, Dr. Howard Koh, tells us how Biden will handle this pandemic we're in. And lastly, in geeky science, we find out how our bones are made of stars. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us, Noah Greenwald. He's the Endangered Species Director for the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. His Twitter handle is Noah underscore Arc underscore 757. Noah, welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. Oh, thanks, Tom. I subscribe to Nature, you know, and, and they have a daily newsletter. And a couple of days ago, one of the top stories that they highlighted was how there are an estimated 10 thousand potentially pathogenic as yet unidentified viruses in the reservoir of wild animals around the world. And that with increasing frequency, this is where syphilis came from, it's where the flu came from, it's where, I mean, you pick your disease, right? Smallpox, measles, mumps, they all came out of animals originally, and we can identify the time that they did, you know, and many of them just came out in the last thousand years, some of them in the last few hundred years. And the same with MERS and SARS, and now the coronavirus, these have all emerged in the last 20 years. And in every case, it was the result of humans decreasing the habitat of wild animals, decreasing wild habitat. And as we were decreasing that wild habitat, the diseases that were being kept stable and away from us in that habitat were attacking us. And so in that context, it seems to me really important that we not destroy the wild anymore. Yet that's exactly what the Trump administration is trying to do. Tell us about this. Yeah, so the Trump administration proposed a new rule in the last week that makes it harder to protect habitat for endangered species. You know, I absolutely agree with you in that diseases are coming from nature and that if we want to avoid that problem, we have to protect more of the natural world. In fact, the UN has a goal 30 by 30 and 50 by 50, which would mean we would protect 30% of the natural world by 2030 and 50% by 2050. And that's under the Convention on Biological Diversity. The U.S. is unfortunately one of the one of only two countries that hasn't signed on to that. So that's unfortunate. In this case, what the Trump administration is doing is under the Endangered Species Act, when a species is listed as threatened or endangered, one of the requirements is that the Fish and Wildlife Service designate critical habitat for them. And that mm-hmm. is the area that they need to survive and recover. 
and it can include areas where they don't currently occur. And that's really important because otherwise the only protections that endangered species get are for where they actually occur. And oftentimes endangered species have lost lots of range. And so they need to be recovered to a bigger area in order to be secure. What this does is it says essentially that for an area to be designated as critical habitat, it has to have habitat right now. And that's problematic in a lot of ways. So, for example, the northern spotted owl, right now it has over 9 million acres of critical habitat. And many of those acres aren't the old growth forests that the bird needs. They're young forests that have been logged, but they'll eventually become old growth. Under this proposed rule, Fish and Wildlife Service wouldn't be able to do that. They wouldn't be able to designate those areas because they presently don't have habitat. And in fact, under a settlement with the timber industry, the Trump administration is expected to issue a revised designation of critical habitat for the owl any day. And so we'll see how this rule impacts that. Are they doing all this just for the logging industry or are there other industries that want to pillage nature? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there are other industries, the oil and gas industry in particular is one that's causing a lot of habitat destruction and has been in recent decades. So that's another one. But this rule stemmed from some litigation over a species called the dusky gopher frog, which occurs in the southeast. It's one of many species that's dependent on longleaf pine forests. And so it is actually the timber industry that drove this because that lawsuit was brought in part by Weyerhaeuser. And so what what happened is the frog needs ephemeral ponds, ponds that are wet in the spring, and that's where they lay their eggs. And then it dries up. And so there's not fish in there to prey on their eggs. And then otherwise, it mostly lives in the forest. It's restricted to basically one pond in Mississippi. And so you can imagine that one pond is does not make a species secure. You know, if anything happens to that, the species yeah. is basically gone. So the Fish and Wildlife Service has designated some critical habitat in Louisiana as well that had the ephemeral ponds, but the frog hadn't been seen there since the 1960s. And the land was actually leased to warehouser for logging it didn't have the right kind of forest it had slash pine rather than longleaf pine forest so they argued that since it didn't have the longleaf pine forest it couldn't be critical habitat even though it could be restored to that and it had the ephemeral ponds which are actually kind of the more limiting thing for the frog one interesting twist about this was that warehouser didn't own the land and the landowner argued that the critical habitat impinged on him because he wanted to develop the land, which Weyerhaeuser has no interest in, obviously, because it would end their lease, essentially. But Weyerhaeuser sued anyway, which I hold that against them. I do. And so they lost at the district court. They lost at the appeals court. They took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gave them a very narrow ruling saying Fish and Wildlife Service hadn't defined habitat and has to do that. And so that's what generated this rule. Ah, I see. How extensive is the destruction of nature in the United States and around the world? Is that a number that you have at your fingertips? You know, I I haven't seen anyone quantify that number, and that would be an interesting thing to try and do. But we have been losing a lot, in particular, 
something like old growth forests. Luckily, we had the Northwest Forest Plan for the owl and the merlet and for salmon in Oregon and Washington. So we protected a lot of what was remaining. But in exchange, we basically let go of it on private and state land. So we've continued to see loss of old growth forests in the Northwest. You know, other examples are in the last 10, 15 years, we saw massive oil and gas development in North Dakota on the back end oil reserves and then in the Permian Basin in New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma. So we've seen, you know, massive habitat destruction there as well. The Permian Basin's been the biggest oil play in the world for, you know, the last decade or so. Tar sands in Canada, you know, so we continue to see habitat destruction ongoing in North America and in the world. I'm 52, and so in my lifetime, the human population has gone from three and a half billion to seven billion. And um, that in combination with consumption patterns has, you know, really led to a great deal of habitat destruction. Yeah, just the pressure of humanity, as it were. Noah Greenwald, the Endangered Species Director with the Center for Biological Diversity, biologicaldiversity.org. Noah, thanks so much for dropping by and filling us in on all this. It's fascinating and, frankly, a little horrifying what the Trump administration is trying to do. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Dr. Justin Frank, a psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, author of Trump on the Couch and Obama and Bush on the Couch as well. His Twitter handle, Justin Frank MD, is on the line with us. Dr. Frank, welcome back. Why do you think it is that Donald Trump seems so aggressively interested in actually destroying our democratic republic. Thomas Paine said the beating heart of democracy is the vote. Donald Trump is trying to destroy our belief in our election systems. Why would he do that and so many of the other things he's doing that are literally tearing this country apart? Well, it depends. Hi, Tom. It depends on how deep you want to go. So I'm not sure how to answer that question since I'm a psychoanalyst. And it so, might not make sense. Well, we've got about four minutes or five minutes, so oh, well, whatever you can do in that. no problem. <laughs> if we have four minutes, God, that's like a whole analysis. Here's the thing. He wants to destroy anything that has to do unconsciously with his father. And that includes the fathers of our country and the founding fathers. He wants to destroy our republic because he wants to destroy ever having to rely on the past. He really hates a lot of things in his childhood. The second thing is he wants to destroy our belief systems. The reason he lies is because he was lied to as a little boy when his parents told him they loved him. So for the rest of his life, he's been lying to everybody else. He was first lying in order to build his career, in order to improve his self-esteem when he had reading problems. And then later in life now as president, he's actually lying to save himself. The third thing is that the reason he wants to destroy our voting system is that he needs to be able to continue to project, which means he needs to continue to disavow who he is. And the only way he can do that is by breaking down things that are essentials of our democracy. And by that, for instance, he sent out a tweet the 3rd of August in all caps, and it said, something like fake news is the enemy of the people. That was a double projection in all caps. 
because he is the fake news. He makes everything up, including recently about the coronavirus, also about the violence in Portland. Also, I mean, he's been making things up his whole presidency about those big uh, groups of people coming up from the South to the fence and all that. But the second thing is he's projecting the fact that it's the enemy of the people, that fake news is the enemy of the people. He's actually, therefore, telling the truth about himself. He, Donald Trump, who is fake news, is also the enemy of the people because he is undermining American democracy. Right. You recently called him psychotic. That's a very specific and strong label. Please explain. It's a strong label outside of the medical profession, but in my profession, it's not such a strong label because there are lots of aspects of psychosis, and maybe it was too... People think that if you're psychotic, a lot of lay people think that if you're psychotic, it means you can't tie your shoes and you walk around talking to yourself and wearing, you know, a tin hat and everything. That's just not true. Psychotic has to do with a thought disorder. It's about a disorder of thinking, and it's so profound that you cannot assess what's real and what isn't. You cannot do what's called reality testing. If you have compromised reality testing, you are on the edge of being psychotic, especially if it's chronic and it's consistent. It is, is this why he says that testing is what gives us the, all these cases of coronavirus? That's correct. He says that testing gives us all the cases of coronavirus. That's a psychotic thought. He has what's called a thought disorder. That's a classic example, but we're so used to normalizing him, accepting the fact that he has all these weird thoughts. There's so many that are psychotic. You can make a list of them. He is a textbook psychotic person. Now, there used to be a term called psychotic character, which is maybe what he is. I don't know. So, Professor Frank, what do we do with this? How should Americans respond to a psychotic president? The main thing to respond to is to try to not believe anything he says and not give him too big of a bully pulpit, to not continue to do those things. The second obvious thing is to mobilize, 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 and make sure he's voted out in November. But there needs to be some safeguards set up by the politicians to make sure we're safe from him being more psychotic while he's president, because he still will be president until January 20th. So I think that there needs to be some safeguards set up in the White House guarding him. He needs to be quarantined in some way. I don't know how to do it. Dr. Justin yep. Frank, his book, Trump on the Couch. And Dr. Frank, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's always great Thank talking. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Frank, you can tweet him at JustinFrankMD. We've been talking for days now about the coronavirus and the Trump administration response to it, particularly the response since April 7th, when all the newspapers and electronic media in the United States announced that black and Hispanic folks were dying at disproportionate rates to white people. That was the week that all of a sudden, basically the entire Republican Party and Freedom Works and a bunch of these right-wing groups suddenly started saying, oh, it's time to open America back up. The week before that, everybody was in lockdown and everybody was in, in uh, step with that. So what would somebody who is actually 
overseen the Office of the Surgeon General say about this, somebody who has overseen the Commission Corps of the U.S. Health Service, somebody who oversaw the Department of HHS's Office of Public Health and Science, the former Assistant Secretary of Health for HHS, confirmed by the Senate in 2009, nominated by President Obama, and a professor of public health leadership at Harvard, well, such a person is on the line with us, Dr. Howard Koh, and his uh, Twitter handle is drhowardkoh, website hsph.harvard.edu. Dr. Koh, welcome to the program. What are the things that we're doing wrong that we could or should be doing right? The lessons that we can not just learn from other countries, but also from, for example, the time that you had when you were working in this field. Tom, thanks for having me on. You know, we're into month seven and counting in the worst pandemic our nation has faced in over a century, and we still don't have a national strategy for how to move forward. And it's so critical to talk about this, especially as the fall is arriving and flu season will be here, especially when schools and colleges are thinking about how to reopen, especially when sports teams are trying to figure out how to get back on track. Until now, Tom, we've had 50 states going in 50 different directions. Uh, We've had states competing with each other for supplies and PPE and test kits. We've had inconsistent messaging from the White House. In fact, the only consistent part of it has been the inconsistency. And so it's led to a patchwork response, which has resulted in now over 5 million cases and 160,000 plus deaths. So we need more national coordination. We need more strategies. We need to test not just harder, but smarter. And we need a more proactive approach going forward. Do you see any of those things being discussed by anybody in this administration? Well, we are very hopeful about a COVID vaccine coming online. So that gives us a lot of promise to look forward to. And we have an outstanding scientific effort going on by NIH and in partnership with pharma. And uh, we also have leaders like Dr. Fauci, who I had the great honor of working closely with, who is overseeing that scientific effort. It's very important, though, to make sure that we coordinate the seasonal flu efforts this coming fall and the messaging and the communication with whatever COVID vaccine effort comes next. When I was assistant secretary in 2009, Tom, we did that with a one government approach where we had two simultaneous flu vaccination campaigns going on in the U.S., H1N1 vaccine and seasonal flu vaccine. It was not easy, but the only way we got through it was a one government approach that brought together federal, state, and local health officials. And that's what we need going forward. Yeah, I mean, you worked in the Obama administration. You know Joe Biden. How do you think a Biden presidency would deal with this or should deal with this, for that matter? Well, the vice president actually published an op-ed in January when the first few cases of the novel coronavirus were occurring in the U.S. And that op-ed summarized his experience in government. Anybody who has served in government, especially in the midst of public health crises, knows that these crises are inevitable. It's not a question of if, but when. And so to be prepared, to be proactive, to have plans to have all of government working together to protect high-risk groups, to stay ahead of the curve at all times is critically important, and that has not happened to date. So I'm anticipating if the Biden campaign is successful, that philosophy will be restored. One of the big news stories was that President Putin of Russia had ordered his equivalent of the FDA 
to, on an emergency basis, set aside the requirement for phase three testing of a vaccine. Phase one, give it to a small number of people, make sure nobody dies. Phase two, give it to a slightly larger number of people and see if it produces a strong immune response. Phase three, try it out on tens of thousands of people and see if there's, like during Jerry Ford's administration, we really didn't apparently do that third stage aggressively enough because we ended up with all these people getting the, as I recall, it was what, swine flu vaccine and, and you had this Gian Barr syndrome, you know, neurological disorder. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff, please. But in the context of answering this question, I mean, Russia has said we don't need to do this and we're going to roll out a vaccine. How concerned are you that Donald Trump may do the same thing here? Well, we're watching what our peer nations are doing with respect to COVID response. The announcement from Russia is very alarming because here in the U.S., we have a well-developed process of vaccine development, testing, trials, uh, release, and then tracking of outcomes, particularly safety outcomes. We've done that here in the U.S. and, of course, in many other places around the world multiple times from multiple vaccines. And so when a new vaccine is being developed and tested, it's got to go through those phases that you described, Tom. We have to have excellent data and science. We have to have the best scientists looking at the data and deciding when a vaccine is deemed effective, uh, having the FDA work closely in this process, of course. In Russia, that has not occurred. What I am seeing and what we're reading is that they're making that vaccine available to people when the trials have not been completed, in fact, have barely started. So that's, that's not the way to do it. Here in the U.S., we need to follow those standards and that process very, very carefully, keep the science at the highest level. And then when a vaccine is approved by the FDA and released, we have to track the safety profile very, very carefully, because that's what the American people need and deserve. The fastest we have ever taken a vaccine from initial development to final widespread distribution was the mumps vaccine. It took four years. Again, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I just read it in the popular press. You're the scientist and professor. But what makes us think that we can produce a vaccine in six months or eight months or 10 months even when the fastest vaccine that the United States has ever developed in 200 years took four years? Well, that's a good question, and you know your public health history very well. So you're right. Vaccine development usually takes on the order of decades or years. The COVID vaccine has been fast-tracked and could be available in a matter of months, that is, at the end of this year or early next year. Through this process, we have understood over the years that when a vaccine is critical, as it is now, We have to stay ahead of the curve. I've served in government in past administrations where there were vaccine shortages at key times, and no one wanted that to happen. So this philosophy now that's being implemented by the administration has evolved over multiple administrations over multiple years. Uh, You may know that the U.S. government has already bought up millions, in fact, billions of doses of vaccines from multiple companies, even though no vaccine has been proven yet because they don't want to lose any time if one of them is proven effective. So that is a strategy we're all banking on to get people the vaccine they need and deserve when one is found scientifically to work. Yeah, if if money is no object, then that makes a certain amount of sense. My concern is that typically it takes a year or so before you even know what the side effects are. I mean, that's why typically vaccine trials take four to 10 years. Yeah, that's right. So that's why monitoring 
safety outcomes is critical, not just now when vaccines are being researched, but later when vaccines are, are disseminated as, and as they're rolled out. being administered to people. Yeah. Right. Dr. Howard Coe, professor of public health at Harvard University. Uh, Dr. Coe, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking to you. Sponsoring the interview this week is... What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. In this week's Geeky Science... This is an amazing story, just amazing. You know, one of the things that for me was a giant, almost a spiritual revelation, a spiritual insight when I was a teenager, as I recall, maybe even younger than that, was when I learned that outside of hydrogen, which apparently the universe was filled with at the beginning, right? Outside of that, Every other element has been created by being burned inside a star, by hydrogen burning itself into helium and then basically merging nuclei fusion. Nuclear fusion is what it's called. Taking a whole bunch of very light elements and jamming them together and coming up with a heavier element. I mean, literally every element, gold, copper, and and we're able to watch stars explode or sometimes see stars and say, oh, well, that one's heavy in this particular element. But the one element that they've been really unable to exactly figure out which stars, how and where and when it's created is calcium. The stuff in our bones, our teeth. I mean, you know, look at your teeth in the mirror. Look at somebody else's teeth. What you're seeing is something that was made in a star. But what star and where and how? Nobody knew until just a few months ago. And the reason why was because an amateur astronomer a fellow by the name of Joel Shepard noticed a burst of light in a spiral galaxy called Messier 100. It's 55 million light years away through his 
personal amateur telescope. And he spotted that there was a bright orange dot in this galaxy, which could be the beginning of a supernova, of a massive explosion of a star. And so he flagged this on the amateur astronomy bulletin boards, and it got picked up by professional astronomers. And uh, in fact, uh, when uh, Jacobson Galan, the author of this study, said observing supernova within hours of an explosion is the new it thing in our field right now. And what they found was that this supernova, majority of what it was blowing out as a star exploded was calcium. And it turns out that uh, this is, uh, Jacobson Gillen said, calcium-rich supernova produced just enough additional calcium in the explosion to provide an efficient means of emitting photons that in turn release heat. He said, nature chooses the path of least resistance and calcium provides that path when enough of it is present in a supernova. This is supernova 2019 EHK. It emitted the most calcium ever observed in a supernova event. More than 70 scientists around the world collaborated on this. He said it wasn't just calcium rich. It was the richest of the rich. But we are literally, I think this was an old Joni Mitchell song line, we are star stuff. Everything you see around you came out of a star. Our geeky science for the day. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.